The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my pleasure to welcome Lynn Dornblazer. She is Director of Innovation and Insight at Mintel, which is a global market research and analysis firm with offices based all around the world. She is speaking to us from Chicago, Illinois, however. Lynn brings more than a quarter century of product trend knowledge to Mintel, where she applies her unique perspective on the market and new product development. Now, prior to joining Mintel, Lynn covered new product trends at several trade magazine publishing companies. She was editor and editorial director of the publication New Product News, which is where I first came to know Lynn through the written word. And I was working at the University of Missouri in Extension, and I'm a trend junkie. And I used to wait for Lynn's newsletter to come out to see what were the new trends in food products and innovation. So, Lynn, welcome. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Well, I want to know a little bit about how you got into this line of work. You have a degree in journalism from the University of Illinois, And I should also let our listeners know that in your bio, you say that you can usually be found in the aisles of a supermarket somewhere in the world. So how did you marry your love for following trends to a real-life paycheck? You know, I totally fell into this job. Degree in journalism from U of I, as you said, and I started out a million years ago working at a trade publishing company on as the very lowest person on the totem pole on the editorial staff of a magazine in the baking industry. And in 1986, we purchased a publication called New Product News from an ad agency in New York City. And it was time for me to take on a new challenge, and that was the challenge. And now, 28 years later, I'm still doing it. (laughs) So I'm still looking at trends, and I'm still tracking new products, and honestly, yeah, I go to supermarkets all the time. My husband can never come with me when we grocery shop because I take too long and I look at everything and I always come home with really weird stuff. Well, I should let our listeners know that after following you for all these years, I actually saw you on a panel at the Healthy Beverage Expo in Long Beach, California, where the topic was really on sweeteners, but you follow all kinds of food trends. And I, like you, also like to go into supermarkets wherever I travel to see the differences, and mostly I look for what's not there. You know, as a dietitian, I'm so busy telling people, you know, giving them guidance on how to stay healthy, and I go into the supermarket not so much looking for new products, but I look to see what's available to the consumer and what isn't. So we're going to have a good time. First of all, let me start out with just a simple question, and that is, how do you know the difference between a trend and a fad? Yeah, we talk about that a lot because, as you can imagine, with our clients being those food and beverage companies, you know, they ask us that question all the time or they have their own theories about it as well. Um, Trend versus fad is one of those fascinating and very difficult things because quite often something that is a trend may seem like a fad at first and the reverse sometimes. So, for example, I guess one thing to think about or to to use as an example might be Greek yogurt. 
in the U.S. market. Greek yogurt outside the U.S. is a very different animal. But but just looking and thinking about Greek yogurt in the U.S. market, you know, would you say is it a trend or is it a fad? Well, of course, Danon and Chobani and Faye and all the companies that are doing very well with Greek yogurt would say that that is absolutely a trend. I personally might say that Greek yogurt is a fad. What is not a fad, what is the trend, is protein in the diet, which is what sits behind Greek yogurt, you know, the whole idea of Greek yogurt. But that you've got a yogurt product that is thicker than other yogurts and it has a lot of protein in it, that thing in itself, to me, feels a little bit more like a fad. Mm-hmm. When, we look at fa- when we identify fads, what we see with fads is several things going on at the same time. You will see something that is usually limited in geographic scope, so maybe just one country or a few countries, and or it is limited in category reach. So Greek yogurt in, you know, not spreading out into other categories. Now, Greek yogurt has done some spreading into other categories. You see it in breakfast cereal and other things as well. But you often see that kind of limited reach. Often, too, you see products that might not be easy for consumers to understand or might be ones that are difficult for them to adopt. And while actually, you know, both of those things you aren't entirely the case with Greek yogurt, if you're a yogurt fan, you probably get what Greek yogurt is all about. But to me, it feels like it has had such a meteoric rise in terms of number of product introductions, and sales, and now you're beginning to see Greek yogurt and the associated benefits attached with it in some odd categories like face creams. We've, oh, we've nice. seen that show up in, in facial skincare products where there's absolutely no benefit. It's just the implied benefit. Right. That says to us that the whole idea of Greek yogurt might be getting to be um, peaking or reaching its uh, the the top of where it's going to go. And if it truly is a fad, then it's going to drop off the face of the earth really fast. The best example that I always bring up of a classic fad is low-carb back, what, five, six, seven, eight years ago when low-carb was so big. Number of introductions, huge, only in the U.S., only in certain categories, went up very, very quickly. Then you started seeing low-carb formulations or low-carb claims showing up in ridiculous categories like in juice drinks, let's say. Or, (laughs) no, that's that's an incorrect example, but in categories that, like in, in frozen broccoli, that'd be right. a perfect example, you know, low-carb frozen broccoli. Then what happened was the introductions disappeared, sales disappeared, companies got out of the market as fast as they possibly could, except a few that rode the trend all the way down to the bottom, yeah. all the way down to failure, could total failure. But that's a perfect example of a fad. You don't usually see those yeah. that are that perfect, but... You know, that's that's what we kind of think about when we think about fads. When we think about trends, they tend to spread across countries, they tend to spread across categories, and they tend to be easily adopted by consumers, and consumers really get what it is. And a good example in the U.S. market is the concept of breakfast biscuits, with the market leader being Mondelez's um, Belvita. That's a concept that came from France, had never, was something that was France and Southern Europe, we had never seen anything like that in the U.S. They'd never seen anything like it in the U.K. and most of the rest of Europe. And now it is a huge success, Belvita especially, and has spawned a lot of competitors. Hmm. And again, consumers get it. They get that idea of 
sustained nutrition to get you through until your next meal. Well, and it's so easy, this grab-and-go kind of concept. And when I was looking at Mintel to prepare for our interview, I went and looked at some of the upcoming, you know, the waves that are expected to take over the market. So, for example, this eating-on-the-run idea and yet this push towards health so I can absolutely see where the breakfast biscuits might be really appealing to people who are just kind of dashing out. I noticed there was a word on your website called transumers, meaning yeah. people who are eating in transit, <laughs> yep, which is right. very interesting. Well, I want to go back, if I might, to the yogurt example for a moment, because as you mentioned, it was a high protein. But the other thing about it was it was it's really low in fat, and yet it has this creamy texture. Let's talk about fat for a moment because I, what I see happening is we are moving away from that. True, there was a low-carb movement. We've been entrenched in low-fat for so long, probably for the length of my career, quite frankly. And now I see this trend towards, or what I'm calling a trend, towards, you know, fat is okay, actually. Tell me what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I, you absolutely nailed it. Um, it feels like what we've seen when it comes to health and wellness in general is a very gradual progression through nutrient or issue-specific things to a more gradual understanding of what we talk about a lot being balance in the diet. Because it seems like in the in the 70s, much of the 70s, as we saw diet meals especially, begin to come onto the marketplace. It was, and in the early 80s as well, it was all about calories. Yeah. I think most people don't understand that the first lean cuisine and the first Weight Watchers meals were low calorie. Yeah. High fat, high sodium, high cholesterol. Then that completely changed in, oh, in the later, in the late 80s because of one specific product introduction in 1989 and that got us way more focused on fat. And that, that introduction was ConAgra's Healthy Choice Meals. Mm-hmm. That was followed in 1992 by Nabisco's Snack Wells, which were fat-free. That's right. And all around that time as well was the Nutrition Facts Panel and the you know percent of your calories from fat. And so that was all about fat, fat, fat. Everyone was looking at fat. Then, of course, in the 2000s, I guess, we had our low-carb craze. And now that seems to have gone away a bit. And what it feels to us what is beginning to happen now from a consumer standpoint is that consumers are getting that idea of balance in the diet. Um, we've got some of our consumer research, in fact, says that indicates that 92% of consumers in the U.S. say that living a healthy lifestyle is all about moderation. Oh, so intellectually, the, intellectually, they know it. Yeah. From a practical, everyday standpoint, they really, really, really struggle with it. If they didn't struggle with it, we wouldn't have the levels of obesity, the levels of diabetes that we currently have. But they get what they should do. Mm-hmm. And that's a big change, I think, over the last 30 years. Because way back when, consumers didn't understand what they needed to do. So they they keyed on that one thing that was being pushed, whether it was calories or fat or carbohydrates or whatever it might be. But now it seems like they're understanding 
that it's not only what you eat, but it's about your, you know, larger lifestyle and it's about a more holistic sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. Well, if I were to predict an up-and-coming trend, and I think it's certainly well on its way, really, would be the added sugar issue. And I think that films like Fed Up, for example, will help to fuel that. And I know that the FDA is looking at the Nutrition Facts panel and whether or not they will require manufacturers to have that added sugar statement on there to help consumers understand, yeah, if you're going to pick up, say, a glass of orange juice or a glass of milk, you're going to have naturally occurring sugars, but pick up a juice drink or pick up a sweetened dairy beverage and you're going to have added sugars there. And to me as a dietitian, you know, that is one area that I feel we could use a lot more consumer education. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right because consumers don't understand, I don't think, the difference between sugars that naturally occur in products and added sugars. Yeah. In many cases, and I can while I can understand the push towards cutting back on added sugars because that's a very that's the easier way to go. It feels to me like the issue really is sugar in general. You know, number of grams of sugar consumed, sugar, sugars, naturally occurring, added, however they appear in a product, how much of that you're consuming over the course of a day or a week or a month, simply because that adds up to, a, can add up to a lot of calories. That's why, for example, when it comes to juices we're seeing in some countries, not so much here in the States, but you see it much more in the UK market, for example, you'll see juices that are, they'll be low sugar juices because they're diluted. Oh, yeah. It's not because they're, you know, it's not, they don't have any added sugar. What they have is they're less strongly, they they are not 100% juice because they're 100% juice plus additional water. So it's a lower calorie count, it's a lighter flavor profile, you know, the whole thing about it is a little bit different. So that's an example of addressing the issue of even naturally occurring sugars. Right. There's something fascinating going on, though, when it comes to sugars, and that is sugar in general. It's similar to what we see going on in a bigger way with sodium. What we're seeing going on with sodium is we're seeing companies reduce the amount of sodium in products covertly, Mm -hmm. meaning they're bringing down sodium levels, which is reflected in the nutrition facts panel, but they don't flag it up. They don't say anywhere on the pack that it has less sodium than the one that that they had on the market a week ago. You know, they they don't say anything about it. And that's very much growing when it comes to sodium. But we're beginning to see that happen with sugar as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And the place we're beginning to see it happen is, no surprise, breakfast cereal. Yeah. So what the big companies are doing is they're starting to address that issue of needing to reduce sugar, but they're not talking about it yet, yeah. which is fascinating. Well, listeners, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are talking with Lynn Dornblazer. She is Director of Innovation and Insight at Mintel, a global market research and analysis firm. Her office is based in Chicago, Illinois, but Mintel has offices all over the country. And I do want to let our listeners know about this great information available at their fingertips at Mintel.com. So, Lynn, this is fascinating, you know, to see what what the trends are in the food industry. And if I might go back to the trend fad discussion that we were having earlier, one of the questions that I get a lot, and I find it uh, very complicated to answer, 
is this issue of gluten-free products, right? The question to me is, gosh, do you think it's a trend or is it a fad? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've interviewed physicians about gluten intolerance, and we see an increase physiologically, diagnosable. We don't know where or why exactly it's coming from. But I noticed on your on your Twitter feed, you had mentioned seeing some of the gluten products at the end of a supermarket end cap. And I wonder if you would just share your opinion about these products. Yeah, I, when it comes to gluten-free, this sounds like a very flip comment, and I don't mean it that way. But But for those people who truly suffer with gluten intolerance, and suffer is most definitely the word for the people who, who really have a gluten intolerance, this has to be a golden age for being uh, having a gluten intolerance because there are so many more products to choose from and so many of them taste better. So for those people who have a true medical need, they have so many more choices than they ever have in the past. But to me, gluten-free where it is today, the growth that we've seen, the number of products that we've seen, all the talk about it and all of that, that is bound to change. And this is not one of those, I hesitate to call gluten-free a fad because there are are those people who will always need it. And as you said, the, the number of people who have been diagnosed now as having a gluten intolerance has been going up. So clearly there's a base of consumers who desperately need gluten-free products. But we know that most of the people who consume gluten-free products or who choose gluten-free products don't have a medical issue, don't have a an undiagnosed issue, you know, so that they think that they probably are have a gluten sensitivity but they haven't been diagnosed and don't have a family member who has a diagnosed or an undiagnosed condition. We see that I want to say it's close to half of consumers from some of our research say that they eat gluten-free for other reasons. And some of the other reasons are that they follow what celebrities do, and there are many celebrities who eat gluten-free diets, and also many consumers believe that a gluten-free diet is going to help them lose weight. And so what we think will happen longer term is we will see a very significant contraction when it comes to gluten-free in terms of sales, in terms of new product introductions, because those consumers who are going gluten-free now but they don't have a medical issue that they're trying to address, will find that the products are really quite expensive, that they don't have the nutrition profiles that they thought they had, and they're not losing the weight that they thought they were going to lose. Mm -hmm. And so I think that will get a lot of consumers to drop gluten-free. But still, as I said, there are a lot of consumers who really need those gluten-free products. So we won't see the we won't see it go away completely, but I will I do think we'll see it contract pretty significantly. Well, I have to agree with you. I was a clinical dietitian 30 years ago and I remember having a very occasional and I mean very occasional patient with true celiac disease and it was almost impossible to find gluten-free products on the market and when you did, they did not taste very good. So I absolutely concur that it, this is indeed the golden age for those individuals. Well, let me ask you about new products that come on the market. You know, I, I used to have the statistics on the, at the tip of my tongue, how many new products are introduced every year and how many of those fail and why. So let me f- ask you what you see in terms of numbers for new products introduced per year in the supermarket and define for me what makes a product successful. 
Yeah, well, I think I think if um if we were able to say if a product is all these things it's going to be successful, we'd all be millionaires because yeah. um it's so unpredictable sometimes. But first, in terms of new product introductions in general, looking across food and beverage, home care and personal care, which are all the categories that we track. So, for the most part what you would buy in a supermarket, in the US market, we see between 20 and 25,000 new products introduced every single year. Wow. Some years it's much higher than that, some years it's lower. There was a very low period in 2009 which was recession related, but things have kind of come back after that. But there's this little piece of data that's been flying around in the industry as long as I've been doing this, which is oh, the number varies, but it's usually around 90 or 95% of all new products fail. And you see other information from companies like Information Resources, which track sales data, that is a very different number, but they are measuring kind of different things. If that, so that 90% of all new products fail. When you think about it, when you think about the largest possible universe of new products, so all flavor varieties, so if a beverage comes out in 10 flavors, you know, all of those flavor varieties, products that are introduced in all types of outlets, Products that are introduced in test market, so in a very in a very specific location, or regionally or nationally, big companies, small companies. If you take that entire universe, that ninety percent is probably not that far off, mm-hmm. which is really kind of scary to think about. But it's so difficult for any company, no matter what you make or who you are or how big or small you are to have a product truly be successful because you want to make sure that your product hits a consumer need. In the industry, we always talk about unmet consumer needs. But, you know, you you want to make sure that, that it's something that consumers want, that it is going to taste the way they want it to taste, that it'll be at the price point that they want to pay for it, that it is for the meal occasion or the snacking occasion that they need to have a solution for, and that it's something that is easy for them to buy and has a package that is attractive to them and has marketing or communications to them that is going to be what they what they want that's going to resonate with them that's a lot of moving parts it and certainly it's so is. easy for any company to get even one of those things a little bit off and the product won't succeed mm. so Every company does a lot of research. They do a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, a lot of guessing. They do everything they possibly can to make sure that before that product gets out on the shelf that it's going to work. But it's so easy for something to go wrong. And when you think that so many products are in development, especially like a brand new concept, might be in development for two or three years before it actually gets to consumers, you can understand how things could go wrong. Yeah. And if the taste is the number one driver, and I've and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I hear this repeatedly that it you know, it all boils down to if you even if you have everything else correct, if you don't have the taste right, then the product is gonna fail. But let's say you have the taste component right. Can you then bring the price up a little bit? You know, what is the how are price points calculated in terms of, you know, you've got a luxury product, you've got a luxury image, you can charge a little bit more for it, and yet we've got this constant drive for cheap food. I wonder how new product manufacturers weigh all this. Yeah, it's it all depends, or it depends on 
again, you know, so many different things. But one thing that companies spend a lot of time thinking about is making sure that they really know exactly who their customer is, you know, who that consumer is, and for for that consumer, what is a premium price product? And the example that I always draw is what we see in regular mainstream supermarkets, so, you know, a, a, a Safeway or an Albertsons or, you know, one of the big mainline supermarkets, and then what we see at the hard discounters like Aldi. Yeah. Or even a, a retailer like Save a Lot, let's say. But Aldi is the perfect example because Aldi is in the industry is what would be called a hard discounter, meaning they sell products at, at probably the lowest prices you can find just about anywhere and it's very, very no frills. But they have some lines of products that are premium. They're positioned that way, they look very different than the other Aldi offerings that you see. What's in that package, at least by looking at the the outside of the box, looks like it's much nicer than anything that you would buy at Aldi. And for the Aldi shopper, it's a premium price. For a non-Aldi shopper, it's an everyday price. So price is very relative depending on exactly who that target market is. Mm-hmm. Because that's a premium product for the Aldi shopper. It's not a premium product for a non-Aldi shopper. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know when it comes to that price component, it, it really is about understanding exactly who that consumer is. And I think an example that is completely the other end of the scale would be a gourmet chocolate company that's based here in Chicago called Vosges. I don't know if you've seen Vosges chocolate bars. They are the most unbelievable things in the entire world. <laughs> they the flavor combinations are. Extraordinary. There's one called the, there's one that's called the Moe's Bacon Bar, which is dark chocolate, smoked salt, and some particular kind of bacon. It has actual pieces of bacon in the chocolate bar. It is exceptional. (laughs) It sounds like I need to do a road trip. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can buy Vogue in a lot of places that you can buy them in Whole Foods. But what's interesting about the Vosges bar is it's a three-ounce flat chocolate bar. So you, know, you see those kinds of bars all over the place. And the, the more mainstream ones, like uh, there are Dove ones and all of that, are about between 2 and a half and $3. The Vosges bars are $7. Mm, interesting. So talk about a premium product, and it's worth every single penny. Because <laughs> well, the, <laughs> the flavor and the experience is so far above anything that you would get anyplace else. So... That's an example of a, a very premium price product that, that works absolutely right. Well, Lynn, I knew that our time together would fly, and we just have a minute left. I wonder if you would like to leave our listeners with some pieces of information that I may not have brought up in this very short talk. Well, I guess the thing that I would say for anyone is to not be afraid to experiment when you go to the store, to not be afraid to pick up something that you haven't seen before or that is, has an ingredient that you haven't heard of before because the chances are it could be something that, that you'll like that will add to your food experience in a, in a new and unique way and might be something that could end up being a staple in your pantry. 
I think that's good advice. I know I'm such an avid label reader, and I always tell consumers, read the ingredient list. You know, find out what indeed you're eating. Well, I love your website, and I visited, of course, your Twitter feed to see what kinds of new products you were photographing and posting and having comments about, and I want to direct our listeners to do that as well. So for more information about Lynn Dornblazer's wonderful work, please go to Mintel.com. That's M-I-N-T-E-L.com. We've been speaking again with Lynn Dornblazer. She is the Director of Innovation and Insight at Mintel, a global market research and analysis firm. Her office is based in Chicago, but there are offices globally, worldwide. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And once again, Lynn, thank you so much for carving out time in your busy day to be with us. My pleasure. Thank you.